Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today we have with us on live stream Dr. Gregory Sadler of Gregory Sadler fame, the, the famous and infamous YouTube philosophy personality who has been an indispensable resource for so many undergraduates and graduates throughout their career, like Jim, who we have with us today. If folks remember, Jim was with us on the Harlan Ellison episode. Of course, we have Adam, the brilliant Adam with us. And Greg, I just want to say welcome back to the show. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to to be here. I, I like the idea of being labeled as a personality rather than <laughs> like an influencer. You know? <laughs> well, today you are going to provide once again a very necessary resource to people, which is virtue. We're going to talk about the virtue of managing anger in the sort of ancient Greco-Roman way. And for this, we actually looked at the work of Seneca. At least Adam and I did. We I went through On Anger and, and, and Adam did as well. I actually looked at On Tranquility, but like okay. you, Greg, maybe you remember, I used to teach courses on anger management in in the prisons, in the jail system in, in Los Angeles County. And I use stoicism and some other resources as well. And, and I know that's part of your background. So maybe you want to say a little bit about that. Well, you know, I never taught thematically anger management while I was teaching at Indiana State Prison. It was just like a whole slew of philosophy and religious studies courses. But I mean, we would hit on it every once in a while. <clears throat> but that was that was more when I was researching Plato and, and Aristotle. And, and it's interesting, too, because some of the guys would come to me and they were quite interested in Stoicism. This is back in like the early 2000s before. I mean, there was some online internet kind of push with that, but it wasn't like after 2012 when the first Live Like a Stoic week took place. And so I kind of missed some opportunities, I think, <laughs> <laughs> to, to go over this stuff with them and, and to study it for myself. I I wound up reading Seneca's On Anger was the first book by Seneca that I read because I was interested in the whole anger management thing, but I was more into Epictetus than I was Seneca for a long time. Mm. Yeah, I think I kind of unfairly dismissed him for a mm. while as not being as stoic as Epictetus, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. But you know, now now I I hope I have a proper appreciation of what he brings to the table, you know. Sure. Yeah, I'm wondering, did you ever come across a book by someone named Jeff Trailer called Epictetus Club? You know, I've heard of it, but I haven't I haven't read it at all. Yeah. I actually is, is, used is that one that was about prison. I yeah, okay. it, it was about a, an inmate, actually death row inmate who started studying stoicism and, you know, not to give the ending away, but yeah, that that was I, I actually did like a little GoFundMe and you had reached out to me. I think we talked about this. Okay. When I was doing that GoFundMe, this is years and years ago, and I was able to amass enough money to pay for like a class set. And then somebody who did a compilation of Epictetus in Caridian, basically they donated 25 copies to me as well. So I basically had this, this oh, nice. massive suitcase of two books that I took around to the classrooms. And, and those weren't the only resources we used. I mean, there's, there's kind of a threshold there with how much ancient philosophy you could take, you know, if, if you weren't, if you were just showing up to get a credit or something like that. So we had to, we had to use other resources as well, but. Yeah, and getting yeah. works into prison is really dependent on what the DOC in question is like and then what the staff at that actual prison are like, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, we at Indiana State Prison, 
So there were two, there was Ball State and Grace College that were teaching classes there in four-year programs. And some of the, some of the COs were, you know, much more humane and they were like, oh, this is a good thing for these guys. Some of them were like super, super resentful. Like they'd make you Mm -hmm. open up everything and try to confiscate things. So, yeah. 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 And and it kind of like trained you to have this this suspicious eye on your own materials. Like I'd be vetting my stuff like two and three times over. But and anyway, you're doing you're doing something different with anger management now. You're you're either doing courses or you're creating courses online. What is it exactly that you're oh, doing? Yeah. So years and years and years ago, back when we lived in New York in Kingston, I partnered with the Kingston Public Library and I would offer these like year-long get together once a month kind of courses. So I did one on existentialism. And then the year that we actually left, I did one called Understanding Anger. And the idea was that we'd start with, you know, some really early sources and then work our way through different perspectives. And then we'd finish up in the Middle Ages and like do Thomas Aquinas and the Song of Mm. Roland, which is like chock full of anger and Mm. stuff like that. And then maybe do it again the next year. But then we ended up moving here in Mo- back to Milwaukee in October. So I only got 10 sessions in. And then it just, you know, mm. kind of sat there for a while. People would watch the videos, which are not great quality because I was using mm. a flip cam, no, no mic or anything like that. Mm. And I'm trying to think. Oh, so I've been teaching this class at Marquette University mm. now for the last two semesters. They they hire me every once in a while when they need somebody who's reliable to take on classes. And they asked me very last minute, can you do this new core class that's required for all the students? It's called, uh, it's got a very long and aspirational title, Service of Faith and Promotion of Justice, right? So you got to have something that's connected to religion in some way. And you got to have something connected to justice, but you can pick whatever problem you want to work on. And, uh, you know, I was kicking around different ideas. And then my wife was like, you do all this work on anger management. Why don't you focus it on anger? And I was like, yeah, that sounds like a cool idea. So I I designed a curriculum for the classes. And these are all like non-majors, just juniors and seniors who got to get this class out of the way. And they have no idea what they're walking into. You know, when they get into anybody's class, you hand them the syllabus or do that virtually. And I was like, you know, anger is a really big problem in our society and you don't get any effective teaching or coaching or anything unless you really, really screw up. And then they put you in anger management, Mm. you know? So let's, we'll focus the whole semester on it. So I took, I needed a textbook. So I took Nussbaum's Anger and Forgiveness, which is decent, you know? It's not a great book. It's got its its good points and its bad points, but it, that's good for a class, right? Because you don't want anything that's too good because <laughs> then the students don't have anything to react against, right? Mm. So we did that. And then, you know, a whole bunch of selections, like here's some Aristotle. Here, we did Seneca's on anger, you know, Lactantius on the anger of God and various other things. And so, you know, I've been sh- shooting videos and creating podcast episodes as resources for my students. And then I went online and did one of these pop-ups and I was like, here's, here's the class I'm teaching. And then people mm. were like, well, why the hell don't you actually teach us that class? Mm. And I was like, 
you know, I could do that. I have, I have the study with Sadler teachable Academy. I could like do a monthly thing where I, I tell people what we're going to do, you know, mm-hmm. like we're going to do some Plato, we're going to do some Seneca, we're going to do some Homer and then they'll read the text. And then, you know, we get together virtually and, you know, I'll post the video. It'll be a good thing for, for everybody and it'll be free. And then I can, I can continue this like with the original one, you know, there was only so much you could do in a year, let alone 10 months. But with this, if I want to, I can like make it go for years and years and years. Right. So all those little interesting texts that I want to get to eventually, mm. you know, like say I, I'm teaching Mary, Fr- Mary Shelley's Frankenstein this semester, another mm. novel that's just like full of anger and revenge themes. And we could analyze that. So that'll happen maybe, you know, a couple of years from now. And I think there's about 60 people enrolled in it. Of course, you know, you know how it is with online things. People say they're going to show up and half of them do show up. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, that's it. it, It's getting some interest and it might be some raw material down the line for doing something a little bit more, less loosey goosey, a bit more rigorous. Right. I have to see what, 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 what it turns into, but it's a lot of fun. I get a lot of great questions from the participants and then I'll take the video and then put it on YouTube and run it as a, not a live stream, but a video premiere. So Mm. you can do the live chat, right? So you get like a second round of people (laughs) asking questions and raising issues. Some of them a little bit off topic. As all of you know, with live streaming, people ask all sorts of crazy off the wall stuff, but most of the stuff <laughs> is on point, you know? Right. So yeah, it's, it's working out pretty good. And, you know, I've been coaching people in anger management for, for years and years. Um, sometimes you might get a kick out of this. I don't know if I mentioned this before. If I'm working with business people, they don't generally want to hear that stuff is coming from the Stoics or Aristotle or Thomas Aquinas. So I, I don't tell them, you know, I just say this is like emotional <laughs> intelligence stuff. And then, you know, you, you offer them resources from these great thinkers and they're like, mm. holy crap, this is really great. And mm. then afterwards, you're well, this comes from so-and-so. You might, you might want to check them out sometime, you know? So. Just take their money is what I say. But, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, philosophy requires, you know, like every other activity, it requires support. So why absolutely. not why not get the business people to pay a little tax? Absolutely. And now's a good time to plug us. So we have Patreon accounts. I'm sure Greg has one too. If you are watching because of Greg, we're Asset Horizon. Please follow us. And of course, follow Dr. Sadler on his account. So maybe with that said, let's let's get into the meat of of, of some of the thinkers that we're dealing with. I, I know you sent me a, a short reading list that involved Seneca, Plato, Cicero, and maybe there were others besides. But since we mentioned Seneca, you maintain the same conceit that I did at one time, which was Epictetus was the superior Stoic. And then Seneca is like, you know, subordinate, of course. But but now you've you, you've come back around and said, well, maybe there's some value in Seneca's work. What is it that you see particularly in Seneca that maybe we don't see in other Stoics like Marcus Aurelius or Epictetus? Well, I will say this about Marcus Aurelius in relation to Seneca and Epictetus. I, you know, I think that when we look at people that are kind of marginally interested in stoicism, it's always Marcus who they're bringing up, you know, mm-hmm. because you can kind of do whatever the hell you want with it. It's, mm. it's a smorgasbord and there's cool sayings in there and, but there's no like systematic 
structure to it, right? Mm-hmm. I think with Epictetus, there is there is some more systematic structure, although you have to you know wander from discourse to to discourse. With Seneca, oftentimes we have much more focused thematic works. So on anger is all about anger and it connects with some other things like the stoic theory of the emotions. I was just shooting video actually on that chalkboard earlier today at, on the shortness of life, right? And Seneca's mm-hmm. got a real theme there. But you can say the same thing with Epictetus. Like you you look at the chapters of the books, like it'll be on the cynic life and it's going to be all about the cynics or what is what does freedom actually amount to, right? And you just don't get that in Marcus. Uh, and I, I think you can say you don't get that in Epictetus and Caridian either, <clears throat> because it's just a short little best hits kind of work. Mm-hmm. But with Seneca, um, one thing that you can say, and again, this is there's probably no place that this is brought home more than in on the shortness of life in chapters 14 and 15. Seneca is willing to take resources from anybody who he thinks is bringing something good to the table, even the worst of the worst, the Epicureans, you know? <laughs> right, right. Uh, and, and he presents this as if it's like, it's our inheritance. We should, we should choose whatever's going to work for us. In On Anger, his, his primary opposition is the people that he's calling Aristotelians, which doesn't map that closely onto what Aristotle actually says, but close enough, I, I'd say, right? And I guess you could say, you know, I mean, I don't buy the Stoic position that anger is always in and of itself a bad thing, which right. Seneca does hold, but there's an awful lot of really great techniques and insights within the text for anger management that you can you can draw upon so you could be an eclectic like i am and think that you know the platonist tradition has something to offer the aristotelians has something to offer and then the stoics really shine when it comes to anger with all of these great insights that they have you know that aristotle isn't providing you with Mm. so great i want to get others in in the discussion we have adam and jim we'll we'll give it to adam first i just say i really enjoyed reading seneca because yeah this this dispute between him and the Aristotelians, it, <laughs> I can't help but read it in such like a hyper-platonist way, almost like he's arguing with like, it's, it, it, so he said, when he says Aristotle, it's almost like when someone says Mark, that they really mean, yeah, upper Marxists on Twitter, so to speak, or something like that. But I, I, I really sort of appreciated Seneca's peak of anger on the basis, on a quite platonic basis, which is that, you know, the, the pilot of the city or the pilot of the chariot, mm. if you want to use the uh, metaphor that Plato uses in uh, I think it's Phaedrus or Phaedrus. One of the two begins no, with Phaedrus. Phaedrus, yeah. Which is that ultimately that anger is, a, you know, it's 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 a it's a broken wheel. It's it's you know it's it's given. It's I don't know many racing metaphors. He doesn't say that in the Phaedrus. As like the uh, like Seneca sort of anger. So of how yeah. anger is because whereas reason is competing for control over it, as anger cannot be oh, directed yeah. by reason. It's almost like a an enemy force which comes in. And one of the aspects I, I wanted to focus on actually when it comes to Seneca on anger is he he completely denies anger any sense of utility yeah. on the basis that there's nothing good about anger which isn't separable from it. And do, that's right. Do do you think does, does does this sort of overcode the entire stoic understanding of anger is that there's nothing good about it which you couldn't get somewhere else 
Or and and it's, does this does this actually relate back to a kind of latent Platonism, where if anything, anger is like a, a a copy of like a good indignation, so to speak, or the copy of well, a focused resolve? I don't think. I mean, Plato is very clear that mm. thumos, which is the part that mm. we get angry with, has its its purpose to play. And in the Phaedrus, mm. it's the good horse. Uh, the, the appetites mm. are the bad horse. But the charioteer is reason. But, you know, the, the place we want to go to for all of this for Plato is less the Phaedrus and more the Republic, where the, you know, the soul mm. is arranged in, in, in relation to its parts. And it's a very different anthropology, right? So with Seneca, mm. with the Stoics, you've only got this, this one thing that they call the hegemonicon, the ruling part. Mm. And interestingly, it's also the rational part, but it can easily become irrational, right? With, with mm. anger or, you know, envy or desire, pick whatever, whatever, whatever passion you want. Mm. And yeah, Seneca, the point that he's making about anything you can do with anger, anything that anger brings to the table, something else can do that, like virtue or wisdom or, or reason. Yeah. And they're more reliable than anger. I, I, I think he's right about that. There's a lot of people who do seem to think that you need to, you need to use anger to give you the energy, and this is typically platonic, to you know to direct your your mm. strength, your aggression, whatever it is, against the bad stuff, right? So if I see my kid being bullied, it's a good thing for me to get angry in that it makes me respond and say, "What the hell's going on here?" Mm. and knock yeah. it off and stuff like that. And I, you know, I, when you think about it, Seneca's probably like ninety five percent right about this. <laughs> <laughs> there probably are some yeah. circumstances in which it, it, maybe it could be helpful to be angry. And for us screw-ups who are not sages, <laughs> maybe there's more room for it, but we got to be super, super careful. Interestingly, Aristotle, who, you know, like you pointed out, Seneca is targeting, he actually, so when he advocates this virtue, which we translate as mildness or gentleness or good temper, it's praotes in, in Greek, he actually talks about two different modes of it. One of them is the one that we typically think of as the Aristotelian mean, you know, getting angry to the right amount at the right time, right people, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But the other he he talks about is kind of proto-Stoic. He talks about somebody responding the way that the properly angry person would, but without feeling the passion. And this is in the Nicomachean mm. Ethics, you know. So there's there's room in the Aristotelian tradition, and we don't really know that much about what later Aristotelians said, but it seems like there's room for something like what the Stoics are saying, you know. But yeah, I mean, the, the other thing, it just occurred to me too, going back to like the what do we get out of Seneca thing, Seneca's also a beautiful writer, so he's a mm. great rhetorician, and on anger might be worth reading in part to see like how you can put together arguments about this complicated matter that maybe you have to use with other people, like your screw up friends who haven't read mm -hmm. Seneca mm -hmm. and are like, yeah, I'm going to get mad. And then we're going to do some activism. Right. And you're like, mm -hmm. eh, I don't know. Maybe we should take it a little bit easy with this, you know, calm mm -hmm. ourselves down first, you know? <laughs> Great. Jim, do you want to get in? Do you have a question comment for your idol? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So something that interests me about Seneca is sort of viewing 
his writings through the lens of, of his own life experience, especially his exile. Uh, and when I read his, his treatise on anger, to me, it, it's, it's, it's something that very much needs to be viewed through what he went through personally, through his, his you know, very tumultuous life, through you know, his, his own exiles during the course of his life. And I was wondering what you thought the connection was there. Oh, I mean, I, I guess there's a couple things, right? So I, I think you're right that we do a broad, more broad point. We do wrong in like trying to totally separate a philosopher or any sort of theorist what they're saying from what they've experienced. We don't want to like just reduce things to biography, of course, but or say, well, they they only say this because they they went through th- this experience. But it, it does. You're right. There's there's like a a mutual influencing, right? Going in, into exile could be easier if you've got at least the beginnings of a good philosophy of life, right? You look at like his consolation letters that he that he writes. They're they're all about. I mean, they're not all about exiles. They're also about like people's deaths. But you could think of death as a certain kind of exile as well. And then you know he's stuck dealing with this jackass Nero who just you know starts out as a semi bad person and becomes worse and worse and worse. So you can you can say that that's all lurking in the background. But there's there's all these other things that he brings in too, though of um from you know greek and roman history and he does this in his other works too right he'll say well so and so was experiencing this at the time this illustrates this point that we're making so i i think you could see him as part of a wider cultural conversation you know and again i think there's a lot of philosophers who are quite good at at doing that sort of thing Cicero does that, you know, we see Nietzsche doing that all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people aren't philosophizing solely in a vacuum like robots or mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I always think that uh, it's probably an imperfect way to go about my reading of Seneca, but I always find it much more interesting if you can sort of read him through the context of his very complicated uh, relationship with Nero. I mean, I think that's a very important part of his yeah. of his life. You know, I'll be, you know, sort of the first one to say that I've looked a little too heavily into some of the warnings he lays down, you know, understanding that, you know, this would, would have been something that was very much at the forefront of his mind yeah. from the time, you know, Nero was, you know, a very young man. And, you know, it was important to his mother that he you know, has something close to a relationship with Seneca that, uh, you know, you could see it kind of in his writing as, as we go forward. Yeah. You know, on clemency is supposed to be helping Nero to not be such a retributive minded jerk, you know, yeah. and, and, and they've got other examples already of terrible emperors that Seneca can bring up. I mean, he also really hated Claudius, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and portrays him as kind of a buffoon and the people around him as kind of butt kissers. So uh, all that figures into it. Yeah, I mean, what do you do with a Nero? You know, I mean, imagine it was, it was funny. This is a little bit off topic, but at the very beginning of the Trump administration, 
there was this discussion that was going on, and I saw it mostly on Twitter, but I think it was happening in other places. Would would you, if you were called upon, join this administration or not? Would you be like, no, this guy is a scumbag. I mean, look at his track record. Look at the stuff he says. I'm not going to participate in that. But then you're leaving the door open to somebody who has much less scruples than you and might not be able to exert any influence to walk in and be the person shaping policy, it's it's really a tough call, isn't it? You know? it's, and, it's, and, and we face this too, like not just with like, you know, the administration, but like what do we do with our screw up family members or our friends <laughs> or, you know, in academic institutions or businesses? What do we do with how do how do we deal with the screw ups? You know, mm. assuming that we're not completely screwed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is this is thing about screwing up. Actually, I really want to focus on because it reminded me of well, no, because I, mean, I can't remember who wrote it. The Fire and Fury, one of the early sort of big exposés of that sort of administration. It was talking about sort of every, it, it was always framed in the sense of the last person who was in the room with him got you know yeah. the last person he would hear. <laughs> That was what happened, and it was the com- it was it was competing, but it's competing in very different ways. Yeah, but it's competing right. very much so. It's like that Seneca is competing over Nero because what because the way that which Seneca portrays anger, you know, I can imagine that Seneca talking to Nero because the the dimension of anger isn't spoken of in ways. I mean, it's, you know, it's not spoken of in ways which we would describe as kind of Christian because it's yeah. not saying anger is reflecting on an innermost core of yourself which holds all your intentions and your intentions are bad and therefore anger's bad because, you know, anger is a sign of a wrathful intention and that's a sin. But instead, anger is portrayed only ever as an error, an error mm. to be corrected, going off course. It seems at least that, at least, at least when it talks about book one, the idea of hate, you know, why would you, why would you be angry when you're punishing someone? What yeah. do you hate? Error? If you hate error, you're, you're, you know, you're just hating yourself in a way, but actually the, the correction, because when he's, because one of the main arguments is about sort of punishment and anger is good because anger, like, you know, gives you the right situation to go and punish people, but punishment is a correction. It's about the health and the correction and setting course. Sometimes you got to kill people, though. Well, sometimes that, you got to kill yeah. people for the good. If the for good their of own state good. is better than them staying alive, <laughs> yeah. and it's also their own good. But yeah. This is a question about screw-ups, which is, to what extent does a Stoic, the- or at least a, a Senecan Stoic theory of anger, has to bracket out subjectivity, has to bracket out the inner life of the person who's angry in order mm. to render it as something which is some you know, purely like a screw-up, something to be corrected, oh, a course correction. I don't think that it has to. And, and, I, and there's a couple mm. things to say. One is just linguistic. So there isn't the distance between Seneca and other pre-Christian, well, not pre-Christian necessarily in his case, but, you know, like Cicero or people like that, and Christianity that one would assume because the word for screw-up in Greek is hamartia, which means sin, and peccare in, in Latin, or peccatum, you know. So, you know, you can translate it as error, mistake, if you want, but you can also translate it equally validly as sin. Mm-hmm. And it's not like Christians use that sin language more and these non-Christians use it less. And another thing, too, is Seneca, interestingly, he's the Stoic who's most appropriated by Christian thinkers, in part mm. because they mistakenly thought he was a, like a crypto-Christian. <clears throat> there was this fake correspondence with Paul, you know, floating around. He was—one of the reasons why we have Seneca 
is because his works were copied in the monasteries. Mm-hmm. And so they were they were they and Cicero and a few other like, you know, Epictetus in a sort of modified form, the Enchiridion, um mm. got got transmitted over and over and over again. Whereas some of these other works like Epictetus's discourses, we have to wait until later on for them to be rediscovered. And then the third thing to say is Christians in the the early Christian era, when they're deliberately engaging with Greek philosophy mm-hmm. and actually have access to all of these texts that we've we've lost, so they have a, a larger library than us, they're all over the map when it comes to anger. So I mentioned Lactantius. Mm-hmm. He's somebody well worth reading. He's very early. He's also sometimes called, oh, I'm trying to, I'm blanking. It's a comparison. He's the Latin so-and-so because he's such a great rhetor in, in terms of his, his language. But anyway, he's, he's often read and studied just you know, for his stylistics, but he's got this really interesting work on the anger of God, where he takes on the Aristotelians, the Stoics, the Epicureans, other Christians, argues that God actually not only like acts like he's angry at times, which is what some Christians would say, but actually feels the emotion of anger and does so rightly, right? Which doesn't give us license to get angry all the time, but he 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 opens up some scope. So you could say he's like at one extreme, and then somebody like John Cassian would be at the other extreme, you know, in his institutes, where he's basically, you know, like he's gone off and he's hanging out with the the fathers of monasteries in Egypt and seeing what they have to say. And he's kind of putting it all together into his own text. And he says, the only time that you should ever get angry is with your own sins, but you can still do that, you know, so you can get angry at your own wrath and anger. And he's, he's one of the guys, by the way, where we get this anger or, or orge as being one of the eight capital vices that become later on the seven Mm -hmm. deadly sins. So you got two extremes, and then you got all these other people in the middle, like Augustine. You know, Augustine um, says, eh, you can be rightly angry. You really, really got to watch it, because if you if you don't take care of it, it'll turn into hatred, and that's much more corrosive. But Aristotle already said that way back mm-hmm. in the rhetoric, so this, it's not like a completely new idea. And the last thing I'll say, because I'm already taking up a lot of time with this, is um, – so in the scriptures, right, in the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is really one of the absolute centerpieces for any coherent Christian ethics, whenever people, as a side note, whenever people are like, you know, going on about like, well, in Leviticus, a man shall not lie with another man, I'm always like, how are you doing with the Sermon on the Mount? Because if you're not <laughs> studying that and making that central and living up to that, I don't want to hear any bullshit about any other thing from any other book, you know, because that's direct teaching from this Jesus guy. And so if you claim to be a follower of him, I want to see you engaging with this stuff. And in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's really difficult to follow because, you know, it says, the law says you shall not murder. I say to you, whoever gets angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. And then, you know, whoever says Raka to his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever calls his brother a fool will be liable to the Gehenna of hellfire, right? So that's some pretty stiff penalties. Now, interestingly, in in these early Christian texts, and, you know, when, when these were circulating around, it wasn't circulating around as a Bible, ta biblia. 
mm-hmm. you would get like the Gospel of Matthew by itself is like a scroll that you'd unroll, mm-hmm. right? So in some of them, it said whoever gets angry with his brother or or sister or cousin, adelphos, right? Mm-hmm. So it could it's a wide range term will be liable to the judgment. In a lot of the documents, it was whoever gets angry with his brother, echos, without cause, without good mm-hmm. reason. And so John Cassian knows about this, and he's like, I don't care what those other glosses say. You don't get to be angry, right? Mm-hmm. Augustine and John Chrysostom and other people are like, well, what does it mean to get angry without cause as opposed to being angry with cause, right? Maybe there are mm-hmm. times where we should be angry. So, so the ancient Christians are kind of all over, you could say that there's like different different tendencies, you know? So it's not as as clearly opposed to mm. the Stoic point of view. And, you know, and they're drawing on different people, like some of them like Plato more, some of them like the Stoics a lot, some of them like Aristotle. Really, none of them like Epicurus, <laughs> but, but no, <laughs> nobody does back in ancient times. He's, he's the, the punching bag for just about everybody. So, so there's a lot of stuff going on there, I would say, you know? Mm. One of the sort of things that is impossible for me to do is read these things without the sort of critical eye hovering both before and ahead of what I have to read. And I I think there's a number of critiques that are kind of come to me par-baked, and maybe we can kind of flesh them out a little bit here today. Adam and I were talking last night a little bit, and you know, about this concept of the utility of anger. And I'll just say as an aside, I think it's interesting because Seneca's way of arguing for rationality mirrors somewhat the way a hard determinist fights against a compatibilist of free will, right? Okay. That's kind of the way that I see it. He doesn't want to leave any room for anger to overlap this project of rationality. But the, the thing that I I thought was most interesting. Well, two things, you know, I'd like to get your opinion more deeply, like on, on what you think perhaps is the usefulness or or the role of anger in our lives. One of the figures that comes to me is, is Carl Jung, because I, I had been recently watching, I don't know, I was watching clips on YouTube and the film Tombstone came up, right? So we have Doc Holliday, Johnny Ringo, and maybe you remember the scene if you've seen that film where, you know, Johnny Ringo comes into the the bar or the casino and he does the thing with the gun and everything. And they have this exchange in Latin. It's a provocation. And at the end of it, Doc says to his lover, he's like, this man's an educated man. Now I hate him even more. It reminded me of, of, of where Carl Jung says that which annoys us about other people. I'm basically paraphrasing here. It indicates to us like these are places where we have to grow you know, or where, where growth oh, okay. is, is, is perhaps imminent. And it made me think, okay, well, perhaps that is one of the sort of like useful things that anger does. It kind of highlights for us this, this burgeoning contour of our growth. But, but not only that, and I mean, maybe that we, we can just start with that. But the other thing that, you know, I've heard is kind of a truism in the world of, of psychology and social work is that, for men in particular, and it's interesting because, I mean, there's, there's definitely a masculine appeal to stoicism by the numbers. And, you know, this might be one of its criticisms. But interestingly, we live in a culture where men are taught to process many of their emotions, if not all of the negative ones, through the filter of anger. Things like despair, 
yeah. frustration and so forth. In that sense, maybe stoicism is, is is both good and bad in a way because it confronts the sort of global issue that that men face, that all of their emotions are coming through this filter of anger. But at the same time, you know, once we start digging around in there and start parsing things out, we find more complicated emotions. And this might be one of the useful things that anger does, it, it, at least for men or anyone, for example, who tends to process or filter all their emotions through the through the the lens of anger, as it were. Yeah. But I, I hope maybe you could respond to some of that. Well, there, yeah, there's a bunch of different points there. So, I mean, let's start with the masculinity stoicism thing. There is like a variety of fake stoicism that we facetiously call broicism. You know, <laughs> and you know, you see these people in the the what they call the manosphere, right? right? And they again, they they typically only read Marcus Aurelius, and they misread him because they ignore the passages where he says anger is not manly. You know, for example, mm-hmm. in, in I want to say it's like Book Nine or something, but you know, gentleness, is, the prautes again is mm-hmm. is what's genuinely manly and, and human. And I, I think there's quite a few people who. I mean, you could say this with any sort of body of work, probably. There's plenty of people who take on Nietzsche, don't they read him carelessly and they use it as a justification to be a prick, you know? Right. I did that when I was young. <laughs> so I know that quite quite well. Right of passage, yes. Yeah. I mean, and that's one that's one reason why if you're teaching in an undergraduate institution, you can always fill up an existentialism class because there's always going to be angsty youngsters who think that everybody else is a phony, you know, that but you know, I mean that's that's not all that's going on in those texts. And so so there's that aspect. The other thing I would say too is I I think you're completely right that maybe not necessarily every single emotion for Mm-hmm. For a lot of men, but I think that would be sort of a limit case where the only emotion they let themselves feel is rage. There are a lot of negative emotions that men are encouraged from boyhood on to cover over with with anger. So don't deal with your fear, get angry instead. Don't deal with your grief, get angry instead. Don't deal with, you know, the pain of being put down, just that's easy. You just get angry instead and fight back. And that's, yeah, that can be a really big problem in part because you're not recognizing what the hell's going on with you. Hmm. And, you know, it's interesting when it comes to like how you actually apply stoicism. This is something I have to stress in, in groups all the time. People are like, well, I want to be a good stoic. So I need to not feel this emotion or I need to like, Hmm. you know, apply the remedy and get through it right away. And what somebody like Seneca or Epictetus would say is they're good psychologists. You need to figure out what the hell's going on with you and why your thought processes lead to this emotion rather than leading to other possible, more productive responses. You can't just like dismiss it or say, I'm not going to feel that. You know, you Mm -hmm. can't do I don't know if any of you remember that episode of Seinfeld, and I don't know the title of it, where George gets this mantra, serenity now, and like little, little things happen. And he says, oh, serenity now. And it seems to be working for him, but he hasn't changed his, his mindset. Mm. And he starts to say it in much more aggressive, angry ways. Right. And finally he's like, okay, serenity now, you know, and it's, it's totally counterproductive. Right. Mm. So there's, there's all of that going on. And you, you know, you could use stoicism to further that analysis, or you could use, insights from Aristotle or other thinkers, I think, as well, to figure out what's 
what's screwed up about me? Why am I getting so angry so easily? You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the the notion that when we get angry, it's a sign that something is screwed up. Seneca has that in um, mm-hmm. anger. So you could see that as a, a usefulness for us non-sages. Mm-hmm. And when we see other people getting angry too, like if we're close to them, like let's say, you know, we, we've got kids. Kids are are always messed up, even if we're doing decent parenting. They're they're always like slightly going off the rails. And so, you know, they have these responses and we can like we'd be like, ah, there's there's something that we need to attend to over there. Mm-hmm. They're getting they're getting unduly angry over this this thing. What's what's happening? What doesn't work, Plutarch actually talks about this in on controlling anger, is our getting angry at them in response for their unnecessary anger. That's mm. that's a great way to fail as a parent or a teacher or coach or whatever, whatever <laughs> right. I want. But there is one other thing I will say too about this, like going back to the not just the masculinity thing. We've been noticing this as my wife and I have been watching our way through Star Trek, the new generation, because she's a big Mm. fan of, you know, Picard and Worf and all these people. And it's interesting talking in an angry way. I think it even still is happening today with TV shows. It's like a way in which people command and it, it seems so unnecessary. And and the older the shows are, the more you see of this, hmm. right? Where the I guess the cultural convention is you want to like emphasize a point while well, you yell at people and you look like you're angry and sound like you're angry. And it's you know, when I when I think about it, when we were kids, I think that is how we got introduced hmm. to to things. You know, like the coach would make sure that you knew that something was important by yelling at you. you know? mm-hmm. And yeah. and it's, I don't know how the hell we got there, but mm. that seems to be where a lot of the culture was. And I think it's where a lot of people still are today, mm. you know? Yeah. I mean, you and I are probably the closest in age, you know, on I'm that probably point. The here. <laughs> yeah, you, you are. But without putting too fine a point on it, there definitely has been a cultural shift. I think there is a sensitivity now to... And of course, there's going to be those nostalgic folks. Well, we needed to get back to that, Greg. <laughs> yeah, things are so much better. They, their, their memory is entirely selective. Right? Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, just to like to go off topic a little bit. I remember. Mm-hmm. So, like, you think about like sexuality and gender mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all these these things going on today, and and you know, there's places where things are kind of going backwards. But you know, I remember when I was in high school, it, you. You know, it was it was considered by some people okay to be gay, but you wouldn't want to be gay. So again, sort of like that Seinfeld episode. Yeah. Nothing yeah. wrong with it, but you know, and right. there were so many quarters in which if you did anything that would possibly get you labeled as that, you would just get the the crap beaten out. Of you, uh, absolutely. You know? and, yeah. And I think about those times, and I'm like, why the hell would we ever want to go back to that irrational? Absolutely. Yeah. fear-based thing. And I, and I think that a lot of the, you know, crap beater outers mm-hmm. agents of that were themselves closeted, you know, mm-hmm. and they were trying Could to deal with their own feelings. I think about a lot of the guys on the football and wrestling teams, you know, where I went to yeah. high school and, you know, 
you look back at them and, and you're like, well, they were definitely working some stuff out, but unfortunately they were working it out on the bodies of these yeah. other people, you know? Yeah. Well, well, having had been a teacher in secondary school, you know, <laughs> later in my adult life and then looking back, you know, I, I don't even know how I would sort of name this phenomenon, but not seeing the negativity that you're talking about or, or seeing that perhaps in a way collectively we have, we've grown beyond yeah. the, the threat of having the shit beat out of you because you did something that seemed effeminate and that you had to sort of like apply yourself to this, this abstract mold that was just constantly hovering around yeah. and then not seeing that, that there's a sort of weird, like negative trauma in, in a way, like something bad should be happening here because that's what I felt when I was that age. And then I, you don't oh, see it as yeah. much. I kind of had that experience as a teacher, like, wow, that dynamic's gone. That's great. I Man, mean, there I, are there are people yeah. though, that are making exactly that argument, but they're yeah. making it in the way of, well, I had to deal with this terrible stuff. Right. So everybody else should too. And you're like, what the hell's right. wrong with you? Exactly. You know? yeah. When I was when I was in basic training in the army, there were some people who were just unfazed by it. And, nothing really bothered them and good for yeah. them. And a lot of us were like, well, this sucks. You know, these, these people are mean to us. I don't like this. And yeah. then we'd be like, man, when I get rank, I'm never going to treat my soul. <laughs> that way. Right. And then there were some people who are like, I can't wait to get rank so I can make everybody else suffer the way that I have suffered. And you're like, mm. what the hell's wrong with you? You know, I was actually, I really wanted to, because it's actually, I was reading the chat as well in the stream and a lot of people were picking up oh, on yeah, this discourse regarding, regarding the, the masculinity or at least Seneca's reading of anger. Because I think it's something we should, I definitely found interesting, particularly around book one of Seneca's and anger chapters 15 and 20. Yeah, And I'm wondering how much the relationship of Seneca's critique of anger as irrational is tied to a fundamental kind of dis dis disgust or discretion against something that seems abnormal. So particularly, so I mean, this is partly even going back to the idea of Aristotle's, you know, the idea that, that you know, the Aristotelian idea that women are some kind of defective form of man, which, yeah, yeah. It's, which, which gets spiraled out into the medieval theorists of Aquinas. I mean, so for example, so chapter, so book, book one, chapter, chapter and verse, book one, chapter 15, Seneca says, you know, we destroy monstrous births and we also drown our children if they are born weakly or unnaturally formed. To separate what is useless from what is sound is an act not of anger, but of reason. And here we have, following up, that was chapter 20. Uh, it says, anger, therefore, is a vice which for the most part affects women and children. It yeah. affects men also, because many men, too, have womanish or childish intellects. And I'm wondering, to, I mean, it, it, not to say it sounds open and shut, but it fundamentally seems like there's an exclusion here which defines rationality as the masculine as and as masculine, the as a, as a function, and then sort of runs away. I mean, if someone yeah. had just drowned my kid, I would definitely be fucking angry. I, I think the adrenaline <laughs> that would give me would definitely... Uh, no, I mean, we know that Seneca is not like, you know, men are rational, women are not rational because he writes to women, you know, and like Havetzio. But it is, it is a definite part of ancient culture, right? Mm -hmm. And you could say, you know, like with Aristotle, there's a lot of boneheaded things that he says about, about women, um, and you also see this in the Christian authors too, this trope of like women are more prone to certain kinds of anger <clears throat> in part because they're not as fully developed and more passionate, et cetera, et cetera. Right. 
And, uh, you know, we, we, in, in the modern stoicism organization, we've actually had like online symposia about this. What do we make of these sorts of things? Is stoicism as useful for women as it is for men? And, you know, there's, there's a lot of approaches to this. One is to say, well, you know, what do we do when people say stupid things? You know, do we, do we like say, well, that's it for them? Or do we pare that stuff away and say, you know, if you brought Aristotle into the present, like if you took him into one of my philosophy classrooms where the majority of the students are actually women and had him sit there and then took him out to the bar afterwards and said to him, hey, so apply your method. Do you think women are actually deficient when it comes to rationality? He'd probably, you know, say, "Eh, I got to reconsider that, you know, and I think Seneca would as well. So a lot of times I'm not saying that, you know, women should just like you know, toughen up and ignore those passages or something like that. <laughs> but those aren't those aren't central, you know, and we can we can take them and rethink them. Mm-hmm. You know, and my my wife actually contributed to that symposium and she's the, she's the sort of feminist who you could say not only has, you know, risen to the top in a lot of organizations by by dealing with stuff and sometimes being tougher than than the guys that she's having to deal with. But she also is the kind who says, you know, stoicism is great for women because women are people and stoicism is great for people. Rather than saying, well, you know, we've got men's stoicism over here for men's issues and women's stoicism over here for women's issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the majority of what's being said, we're supposed to, all of us are supposed to have our anger under control. And that takes a lot of work. And, you know, we're supposed to cultivate these virtues of wisdom and prudence and, you know, justice, which includes kindness and courage, which includes like not just, you know, going out on the battlefield. The Stoics, you know, Aristotle thinks like the primary type of courage, battlefield courage. Stoics don't buy into that at all. You know, just like getting up in the morning and doing your work throughout the day is a form of courage that they call philoponia, you know, taking on your your job, taking on, on toil. So I think that what we to bring this to a close, what we have to acknowledge is that yes, culturally, ancient Mediterranean and Near East culture, much you know, very male dominated, and not just you know, like all men are up here and women are down here. It's you know, a very few men are up here and everybody else is down here for different reasons, including other men, and occasionally a woman could you know get up there like Cleopatra, you know. Mm. Well, you mentioned Nussbaum, and this this is a debate regarding the utility of anger, which is still happening. With with, for example, Nussbaum and the response that Amir Srinivasan gives in The Atlas of Anger, which is a direct response to that. So this this debate isn't going anywhere. (laughs) I I think that Nussbaum, one of the things that really comes across in her book is this is a elite university professor who's a boomer who has had a pretty nice life, you know, and she's, you know, she makes good arguments, but a lot of times you look at the arguments carefully and you're like, yeah, this doesn't hold up. You know, I can tell you that my students are not very impressed with her. And, uh, you know, another, another good response to, to her work is Misha Cherry's The Case for Rage, a recent book that I, I finish up the semester with. We actually begin the semester reading Audre Lorde, The Uses of Anger, and then they, we start getting into all the other stuff, and then we finish up with Misha Cherry, because Nussbaum's dismissal—I mean, we don't want to say that activism 
works best when it's motivated by anger, but there has to be some recognition of some constructive role that properly guided it can play. Mm. I mean, Martin Luther King recognized this. You know, it takes a lot of training, so you don't like, you know, lose it and like grab a baton and start, you know, cracking people's heads open. But there may be some cases where an angry response, you know, we could say like in a historical situation may actually be needed, right? Mm. So it's almost like a modified version of the Aristotelian view, at least as far as Seneca sees it. Well, Seneca thinks that it's not good. Well, no, the way that Seneca reads Aristotle. What what is? Well, the the idea, for example, that anger, like if we expand it to the metaphor of the army, for example, well, we can make anger the the sort of foot soldiers as long as we have the you know the the cool headed rationality as the generals and the and the field well, commanders. I mean, Seneca thinks you're never going to make that work. Is, is, oh, that's his, his yeah, answer, right. But no, yeah, I, mean, I agree. That's that's how he reads Aristotle and and on anger. There's that kind of passing yeah. note. Yeah. I mean, and Aristotle, so the Aristotelian tradition and the Platonist tradition, which isn't just Plato, but runs through like Plutarch and then into the, the you know, Neoplatonists, they definitely think that thumos, anger, the fat, the faculty that gets angry, but also is interested mm-hmm. in honor and stuff like that, is mm-hmm. it's something that we shouldn't try to just repress or get rid of. We need to properly motivate and temper and educate it. Mm. So that it can serve rationality, you know? Mm. Yeah. Well, with that said, we're approaching about the hour. Maybe we can get some practical advice from Dr. Sadler himself in terms of like, what are, what are strategies that you have maybe derived from this or how have you streamlined these techniques for yourself over okay. time? How do you deal with the jerks online? I, I know I read your, your article on Medium. Maybe you want to recapitulate some of that here as well. I mean, I think it's perfectly fine to block people yes. who are being jerks, not just because of like, that way you're not going to like be drawn into fruitless, angry, anger provoking conversations with them, but they mm. literally aren't, they don't, ha- they don't deserve your time. You have a limited yeah. amount of time. So, you know, having conversations like this is valuable, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, dealing with somebody, like I actually blocked a guy just today who is a local professor who posted some response to something that I said. And I said, I I don't get what you're saying there. And then he just like said, well, you said this. And I was like, you got to make your stuff make sense. Otherwise you're wasting my time. And then he's like, you know, lol, dude, this is Facebook. And I was like, all right, see you later. You know, and I blocked them because (laughs) there will never be, I mean, in theory, there could be a productive conversation with them, but if somebody's Mm going to act like a jerk in an online forum, Mm. just get rid of them. You know, now, you know, Seneca, of course, doesn't worry about the online world, but he does tell us in On Anger, try to avoid situations and people that you know are just going to like piss you off. Um, There's no problem doing that. And if somebody, oh, but you're retreating from things. Yeah, but I I don't have to like participate in every conversation, you know, Mm. Uh, we can think about this in other cases. If somebody like, you know, cuts me off in the grocery store parking lot. I don't have to fight that battle. You know, I can right. still park my car and go and get my groceries. I don't have to like take a stand, you know, right now. So that, that might be reminding ourselves that we are not the, the hero in the action movie who has to set everything straight could be a useful technique. But one that I really like from Seneca and Marcus Aurelius says this too, is you can remind yourself 
that you're not perfect either. When people mm. start ticking you off, you, you know, and, and Seneca actually, he cuts off a bunch of like excuses that we're going to make. Mm. We're like, well, I don't do exactly that same thing that that guy does over there that is pissing me off. And he says, no, you do other stuff instead. And those things are just as problematic, you know? Right. And if you could get away with it, you probably would do that thing too, you know? And interestingly, Marcus, who never mentioned Seneca, says almost verbatim that stuff to himself. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, what would you call it? Like, I, I titled it in a piece that I wrote on this, Nobody is Without Sin, right? He uses the word peccatum there. Um, mm. And I mean, what else for me has been particularly effective as I get older, maybe there's more utility to this as we get older, Seneca and Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius remind us that life is short and we could die tomorrow. So is it worth spending the day or, you know, the night all pissed off or is it better just to like, you know, recognize that there's other stuff we could be doing with our psychic space, so to speak. Mm. You know? Yeah, that's, that's great. Jim or Adam, do you have anything else before we sign off? Sure. I just have one thing very, very quickly, which is before we, we briefly touched on Seneca's relationship with Nero and we've briefly touched on his relationship with Claudius. And something I find very interesting is, is I think you'd be very hard pressed to find a, a emperor of Rome who has been more, I guess, gentrified than Claudius in recent years. There seems to be very much a a, a sect of, of classicists who have really made it a project in the 21st century to recontextualize Claudius. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, take out your your crystal ball a little bit. And where do you think? Where do you think that the the Stoics are going in the future oh. from this from this you know sort of if we can rescue them from the whole you know sort of Andrew Tate Jordan Peterson snare they're in? Well, I mean, the thing to do is to say that that's not Stoicism at all. That's just you know fake stuff that picks up little bits and pieces here and there. You know, where is like, let's call it, where is serious or committed Stoicism going? Within the modern Stoic movement, like every year when we have Stoic on, we ask ourselves, have we hit peak Stoic? And <laughs> the answer seems to be no, there's more and more interest. And I think that it's it's really important that people like, you know, Donald Robertson and Massimo Pigliucci and, you know, Chris Gill, who's still, you know, plugging away, people who understand it and are committed to it to keep on you know offering courses and writing books and being quite engaged in social media you know to say this is this is what it looks like this is what it what it's what it's not like because otherwise the the crap stuff does dominate and you know i i also uh, on the subject of jordan peterson who who's you know not stoic at all. I mean, he's, he's yeah. a terrib <laughs> terrible example in many respects for young men. And it's, it's tragic that so many of them follow him kind of uncritically, not applying the same critical faculties that they do to everybody else, to, to him. You know, there, there's people who will say, oh, you know, I, I realize that he's just a gateway into these things, right? You know, Ryan Holiday would be another great example, right? Who's somebody who's a bit more like actually in the Stoic movement, but pr pretty much just drawing on Marcus Aurelius most of the time. 
Admittedly so. I mean, he he tells you that in, in his Stoicon 2016 presentation. So a lot of people will be like, well, I can't get, I can't like throw these people aside. They were my entry point into Stoicism. And my answer to that is, why the hell would you ride a bike with training wheels all the time? You know, <laughs> we put training wheels on bikes to get kids able to ride them and, and have the stability to like, you know, progress. Why would you, you know, let's, let's take Ryan Holiday rather than, I mean, Andrew Tate is just despicable. And Jordan Peterson mm-hmm. is kind of tragic. Ryan Holiday, eh, kind of, you know, mixed bag, right? So why would you keep on like wasting your time with the daily stoic when you can actually read Seneca? You know, I mean, between the two of them, they might be like, well, you know, it gives me this stuff in pre-digested manner. Sure. But how long do you want to be an infant who's got to have people like, you know, like a baby bird having people spitting stuff in their mouth, you know, (laughs) and sometimes the translations that he provides are bad translations of the passages or he gets things wrong. I'll, you know. I don't want to turn this into a complete let's bash Ryan holiday fest, but you know, I, I had his book, the daily stoic, which he wrote with Stephen Hanselman and my wife and I, a couple of years back, we we're like, yeah, let's, let's read our way through this. And, and for anybody who doesn't know, the daily stoic is like 365 days of the year. There's like a passage from an actual stoic text. And then there's holiday and Hanselman's take on it, right? Things to keep in mind within a month, we had to quit reading the, Hanselman and holiday thing. Cause we were like, this is, this is just not very good, you know? Mm. So we were like, well, we'll just read the, the passage then. And then I, you know, after a while I was like, that doesn't sound right. Let me actually go look at what the passage is in the Greek or the Latin. And I'd find mistranslations of stuff. And then by mm. April we were like, yeah, we're not wasting time with this. Let's just, we'll just <laughs> read the Stoics, you know? So now that's that's a long way from where's the crystal ball going. I mean, I, I don't really know. It seems like there's a lot of people attracted to stoicism and to other philosophies as ways of life because they want some some way of thinking about living a, an intelligent and you know intentional progressive way of of living that you know doesn't turn you into a jerk. <laughs> and so you know if stoicism can supply that that's that's great. I'm an eclectic myself, you know. I draw mm. on the stoics, but I also think that there's a lot of other valuable philosophies as ways of life out there, wisdom traditions, whatever you want to call them. I mean Alistair McIntyre calls them tradition guided or tradition constituted and guided rationalities, you know. Mm. In more, you know, communities of moral inquiry. It's all the same stuff. You know, mm-hmm. whether whether you're thinking like in terms of Hado's, you know, philosophies of ways of life or Foucault's technologies of the self or any of these other jargon that we use, they're, they're ways of thinking about things that have some sort of background with people who experimented with this stuff and then passed on, you know, some substantive tradition to us that we can participate in. And I mean, that to go back to like the, the Tate and, uh, Peterson thing, they're doing philosophy as a way of life too. They're just doing really crappy philosophy <laughs> as a way of life. You know, Tate is is thinking that it's cool to exploit people and you know ruin people's lives for profit. That's commitments. You know, just just commitments to being a terrible person. You know, yeah. 
Well, Greg, you are not a terrible person in our eyes. And before you go today, before we depart, just want to say thank you for coming on again. We, we follow your work. We talk about you behind the scenes. So when you hear your ears ringing, that's us. <laughs> I know you explained that you're working on some anger management stuff, but where, what are some other ways that people can access your work right now today? Well, I'm, I'm really, really fortunate in that if you use Google, which pretty much all of us do unless we're using Bing, right, or DuckDuckGo, if you type in Gregory Sadler, all sorts of stuff comes up, okay. which I, I've noticed you know, is, is great for me and sucks for every other Greg or Gregory Sadler out there. And there's a number of them because it's a very common name, <laughs> not as much as John Smith. But so if people just type that in, like my, you know, my YouTube channel will come up, my faculty profile, all the different things will, will come up if people want to find me. What, I mean, what else is there to, to say about that? So, I mean, I'm like super easy to find. If people are like super, super interested in anger stuff, I do have a couple playlists in, in YouTube that are about oh. philosophy and anger. But I think that's, that's, that's basically it, you know? It's okay. I've gotten, to, like stuff. I've gotten to the point now I mean, where I don't have to be like, find me at HTTP, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll, we'll grab some of that. In Seneca's stuff on anger. I mean, there's a, I mean, Greg's done two series, book one and book two on, on his YouTube channel. We're also 20 paragraphs from the big 808 section. Oh, right. Hegel. We're in absolute <laughs> knowledge now, folks. Join this marriage, join the sprint. Yeah, I should finish it this year, maybe even the summer if I'm industrious. You know, 25 people hung with us during this live stream. Want to say thank you to everybody who listened. If you liked Acid Horizon, if you like Dr. Gregory Sadler, support us somehow. Sign up for Patreon, find our works. We were happy to serve everyone today. And Greg, it was good to see you again. So take care. We'll we'll, we'll have you back again sometime in the future. And thank you, Jim. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks to everybody for having me on. Okay. Take care. Thanks so much.